Chapter Twenty Four of The Boy Chums in the Florida Jungle by Wilmer M. Eli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Twenty Four A Clue. Charlie and Walter climbed into the auto with Mr. Bruce, who immediately started up the machine and drove slowly out on the old road, noting his surroundings with interest. I have never been out in this country before he said. It seems wonderfully strange and interesting to me, so unlike anything I have ever seen in the north. I suppose that thick growth of trees ahead is the jungle you told me about. The boys assured him that such was the case, and before entering the jungle, he stopped the car and looked back at the machine. At the rate your men are working, you will have the road completed up to the jungle in another week, he observed. Yes, Charlie agreed. That is, if we are not molested too much. I dread the work through the jungle, though. I should think you would dread it, agreed Mr. Bruce, as the car slipped into the jungle's gloomy depths. Gosh, I never saw such a sickly-looking place, and these awful snakes. I'll dream of them for weeks. Why, the place fairly reeks with fever and disease. We are going to set fire to it before we put the machine into it, Walter said. The fire will kill off a good many of the snakes, but it won't stop the danger from fever much. Mr. Bruce drove on in silence until the car rolled into Indian Town, where he stopped it in front of one of the truck gardens with an exclamation of surprise. My, I never saw stuff grow like that before he said. This land must be wonderfully fertile, although it does not look so very rich on top. There's a soft grayish rock a little below the surface, Charlie explained. I believe it produces that wonderful growth. I've got some samples of it in my game bag. You can have them if you want them. This land is wonderfully fertile, as you say, he continued, while Mr. Bruce examined the bits of rock but i don't believe even with that in its favor that it will be worth much until a railroad runs through here it's too far from transportation yes agreed mr bruce absently it is too far away to be worth much for farming purposes the little party rode on as far as the trading post then mr bruce declared he had seen enough and turning the car around headed back for camp it's queer how a really brilliant mind sometimes overlooks plain simple little things he said as they slipped by the row of surveyors stakes now the man who is directing operations against you is a man of considerable intelligence the ingenuity of his moves against you prove that he is kept in concealment and in spite of all the annoyance he has caused you you haven't got the slightest bit of evidence against him. Some of his tricks have been infernally clever, and yet he has overlooked one little thing that would have put you out of business in a short time. Don't name it out loud, Charlie begged. I noticed it long ago, but I haven't even dared think of it for fear it might occur to him. I don't know but what you fellows are in the same class with him, said Mr. Bruce, with a smile. 
this case reminds me of a story by edgar allan poe about a long search for a hidden document all sorts of out-of-the-way nooks and places were searched and all the while the document lay in full view upon a mantel shelf you mean that we have overlooked the solution of our troubles because it was in plain sight said walter eagerly something like that mr bruce admitted i am not positive about it yet but i expect to be within a few days in the meantime i'm going to refuse to answer any questions about it it was not yet noon when they got back to camp and mr bruce retired at once to charlie's tent and began filling in the blank places on a lot of legal forms he had brought with him i want all you americans to sign these without asking any questions he said i know it's rather an unusual request but this case is rather an unusual one so you will have to do this blindfold if you want me to go on with your case you will just have to trust me to my honor that's all without any hesitation our little party affixed their signatures to the papers the contents of which the lawyer kept carefully hidden they reasoned that in their present position they had nothing to lose if the lawyer proved dishonest which they did not believe he would for they were all favorably impressed with his appearance and brisk business-like manner after they had signed the teamster and engineers were called in and also asked to sign which they willingly did without question or comment now said mr bruce when the signing was over i'll be going for i've got to do some hustling the next few days if i'm going to be of any use to you better wait for dinner charlie urged but mr bruce shook his head i'll get a lunch in jupiter he said every hour is important now i wish you had come to me sooner as it is i have only a short time to do a whole lot of work in charlie followed him out to the auto i wish you would tell us what you have discovered and what you are going to do he said no i'm not going to do that said the lawyer decidedly not until i am sure that i am right do you think you can keep on working and stand those fellows off for a week longer i think so charlie said simply good approved mr bruce i will be back within a week i must warn you however that if my theories are correct the further you dig the more trouble you are likely to have i expect the enemy will abandon all tricks and resort to attempts to kill before the week is out that's a cheerful outlook said charlie dryly mr bruce hesitated before replying as a lawyer he said i am against killing in any form but as a mere man i would say that i would shoot to kill if the other fellow was doing the same but killing is an awful thing protested charlie it is never justified except in war then just consider that this is war smiled the lawyer you will not have to stretch your imagination much good-bye i will be back in a week the teamster climbed into the auto with him and in a few minutes the car was out of sight charlie slowly returned to the camp where he told his chums what the lawyer had said i think i know 
about where those gunmen are camped, Walter said. I can see the smoke of a campfire near where the convicts camped. If we have any more trouble with them, we could, perhaps, capture them in the daytime when they are sleeping and turn them over to the sheriff. Charlie shook his head. That won't do, he said. In the first place, even counting in the engineers, there would only be seven of us to do the job, but we could not count on the Spaniards. They lack the nerve for such work. Seven men could hardly handle twenty. In the second place, we have no evidence against any of them, except the one who killed the mules, and he is dead. If we turn them over to the sheriff, he would have to turn them loose again. You're right about the Spaniards lacking nerve, Captain Westfield observed. All these mysterious night attacks are frightening them. I am afraid we are going to have trouble holding them if this sort of thing continues. I've been fearing that very thing, Charlie said thoughtfully. They are a superstitious people, and what they cannot understand frightens them. I can see only one thing more that we can do, and that is for Walt and I to go on the night guard with them, and if there is any shooting, we had better do as the lawyer says, shoot back. I don't like the idea of bloodshed, said Captain Westfield. Nor I, said Charlie grimly, but if blood must be shed, I would rather it would be theirs than ours. Same here agreed Walter. If we are going to keep watch tonight, Charlie, we had better eat dinner and turn in for a nap. It was nearly sundown when the boys emerged from their tents, where they had been awakened from their sleep by a clamoring outside. They found the den, the herald of the arrival of Willie John, with all his worldly goods, consisting of numerous dogs, pigs, cattle, two wagons, eight oxen, a squaw, his mother and his mother-in-law, a crowd of children and a couple of wrinkled old Indians, likely his father and father-in-law. Much to the chum's relief, Willie John decided to make camp further on, close to the machine. After they had reached their camping place, Willie John left the squaws to the ignoble, menial work of making camp, and with his son, a fine-looking Indian lad, came over to discuss business with his pale-faced employers. Me drive one wagon, four oxen, he said. Boy, drive one wagon, four oxen. How much? Six dollars a day, said Charlie promptly. Six dollars and plenty of tobacco. It is well, said the Seminole. Some tobacco now. Charlie went to the supply and got a package, and the Indian, filling his pipe, sat down on a log and puffed away in silent content, his son sitting by his side silent and motionless, except for the quick shifting of his black, beady eyes that took in every detail of the camp and its occupants. "'Fine boy you've got,' observed Walter, who had been admiring the perfect form and proud carriage of the Indian lad. There was a glint of fatherly pride in Willie John's eyes as he laid his hand caressingly on the lad's black head. Him good boy, he said simply. Him run faster, wrestle better, swim better than any other Indian boy. Him no drink, Wyoming, whiskey. Him no smoke. Him save all money. 
by and by he go to school all the same as pale-faced boy that's good walter approved how old is he twelve years answered the seminole we go back to camp now good-bye he certainly thinks a lot of that boy for an indian walter remarked to his chum why not said charlie don't you suppose indians have feelings like other human beings both lads had occasion to remember this conversation in the near future end of chapter twenty four